engage with each other and with their Sunday school teacher and with your word. Um, you just do a work in their heart. Sow seeds of the gospel in their heart, God. We love them. Would you bless them mightily? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, head upstairs. Okay, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9 this morning. So if you want to head there in your Bible, it's also in your handout. Uh, it'll be on the screen in a second. But I realize that it's been a while since I've shared with you kind of my own discipleship goals, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, I talk a lot about the fact that um, being a disciple of Jesus, being a Christian, for me, is something I take seriously. And I don't want it to be something that I just... Um, talk about, but doesn't really have teeth in my everyday life. And so what I've done is I've taken Jesus's command that he says is the most important, that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbors yourself. I kind of broke that up into four kind of quadrants, heart, relationships, soul, uh, prayer, worship, interiority, quiet time with God, loving God with all of your mind, being about learning about the Bible and learning how to approach things and live as a Christian in all dimensions of life, and then strength, serving, and giving. And so what I do every month, and I encourage you to do something similar, is to set some discipleship goals, to, to sit down with God and say, God, how do you want me to grow in each of these areas this month? Because my experience has been, there's usually one of these areas that comes naturally to me. I'm a mind-type guy. I love learning as much as I can about the Bible. So I need to make sure I'm challenging myself to actually pray, to actually serve, to be learning to love God in these different ways, because Jesus didn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, or strength, whatever works for you, whatever is easiest, whatever comes naturally. Don't worry about the other stuff. We are called to um, form our whole lives around the gospel of Jesus. And that takes some intentionality and some planning. And so what I'm doing this month, uh, where I started, you know, obviously uh, before today, but just to get a chance to report on it, um, this is what I've been focusing on. Heart and strength for me are kind of an overlap. I volunteered to coach uh, my son's soccer team, some now part of Soccer Saturday, as it's known in Nelson. And yesterday was our first game, practice slash game. And it was really, really great. And I just, that was one way that I wanted to practically serve our community, certainly serve our son, but serve other families here. Uh, they rely on volunteers. And I think it's a great way to, to bless this community. And I really want to do a good job of creating just a great, fun environment for the kids. And also with that, what came out of yesterday is you have these uh, nine little children who are entrusted into your care, and they're looking to you for leadership. And I just thought, yeah, I, I really need to, you know, I've got a team list, and I want to be praying for them and for their families and just building relationships with them. It was great to meet some of the parents yesterday, and um, so I just really feel a burden that I want to do a really great job as a coach and just establish strong relationships with, with the kids and with the parents. In the area of soul, I've really been challenging myself to try and get out of just private prayer and prayer and pray with groups of people. So I've tried to attend the uh, Monday night prayer group that meets upstairs here every Monday night. Anyone's welcome. And I've tried to attend there uh, at least twice a month. And I also have encouraged our ministerial to pray together. That's pastors in this area. We meet usually once a month to go over things that we're planning together. 
but I've really encouraged us every Wednesday over noon, just noon to 1 p.m. to pray. And it's been really, really powerful. And it's kind of these small little group clusters. It's not a big thing. We're praying for individuals and for churches and for God's will to be done in the city. And it's been really, really powerful. And also as a part of our bless, bless initiative that we talked about at the start of the month, I've got my little list of people in my life, friends and family who uh, are far from God or who are seeking God or, or maybe resisting God, and I've been praying for them as well. And that's been really good to bring intentionality to my prayer life instead of just going about my day and whatever pops into my head. Prayer for me needs a plan so that I'm actually following through on my intentions. And as a mind, kind of goal or habit that I've done in the past, and now I'm kind of feeling thirsty again for, I'm just trying to cycle through uh, a sermon a day by Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller's had a pretty formative impact on my uh, theology. Uh, he's a pastor in New York City and uh, incredibly wise, knows the scriptures well. And so I, he has, he's got about 85 free sermons, and I just kind of cycle through one a day, listen and reflect on them. And I've done that before in the past. It's been really, really good for me on a lot of different levels. It's kind of like having a, a personal pastoral coach. And, uh, but it also really forces me into scripture uh, in, in a way that's different from maybe just a personal little devotional time or prepping for an upcoming sermon. So heart, soul, mind, and strength, those are four areas that I think every serious Christian should be uh, seeking to nurture spiritual growth in. And if you want ideas for how to do that, if you kind of feel stuck in any of those areas, please contact me, email uh, whatever, and because uh, I've got kind of a little toolkit that I can say, have you tried this? Do you want to experiment with this? Because spiritual growth should be an adventure. It should be something exciting and interesting, and you don't need to feel stuck for very long. So please contact me if that's where you're at. And one more thing before we get to our text. I finally did our draw for our junior high students. We don't have a junior high Sunday school program. We encourage them to be in the service. And what we do is we have that little sermon insert. And if they fill out the form, if they fill in the blanks, and then bring it to me with their name on it, their name goes into a draw. And at the end of a month, we draw a $20 gift certificate to chapters for them. And that's our way of saying, we know integrating into this space here is kind of tough. Sometimes the things I talk about don't seem really that interesting or relevant to maybe a junior high student or parts of the message do, but so we're trying to encourage them to say, yeah, we, we appreciate that you're working hard here to pay attention and to do some digging. And I did the draw. I don't have the gift, gift certificates, but I keep forgetting to buy the gift certificates, so I'm going to announce the people who won. Then they can bug me such that next Sunday I will for sure get the gift certificates and I won't keep putting it off. So our draw winners from January, February, March, and April are... Lucas Drieger, twice, twice, Callum, once, Israel, once. So, very good. Awesome. Okay, we are going to move into Mark chapter 9. We've been doing a series called Insurrection. We're just going through the gospel of Mark. It's a short gospel, but it has a lot to teach us about who Jesus is, who we are, how we're called to respond to Jesus. Um, I'm going to read the passage, and then what I'd like to do this morning, I've done this before, is I'm going to, instead of just launching into um, kind of my thoughts on the passage, I want us to read this passage through the lens of, I'm going to be inviting you to share observations from the text that you see. There might be questions, or there might just be things that stick out to you. We've done this before, where I'll say, what do you notice in the text? And someone says, 
Well, I notice this. What's going on there? And so I have things that I want to say, but I think this text is so rich and has a lot there for us. So I'm really interested to see what you guys notice or are curious about, and then we'll kind of do some interaction back and forth. And uh, these are always really neat because they're kind of a bit of a learned, learning adventure together. So let's read Mark 1 to 13 with a view to just allow God to maybe highlight some things for us along the way. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as is written about him. Like I said, a really rich text. I've got some lessons from the text, as you can see in your sermon notes, but this is not exhaustive. I pared it down from about 13 or 14 that I had at one point, and I thought, uh, we're just not going to be able to get to all of this but I want you guys to kind of shape how this message plays out. So at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has come on the scene, and he's kind of showing and telling the kingdom of God. He's announcing the kingdom of God, and people are trying to figure out what this means because that was a phrase that meant different things to different people. But essentially it meant God was going to come in a powerful way and begin to restore and redeem. In any kingdom, you have a king, and that king rules with sovereignty over his kingdom and the subjects of the kingdom obey the king and submit to the king. So the kingdom of God was kind of a catchphrase that people use to describe that time when God's going to come in a powerful way and establish his rule and reign and the world's going to be put back to the way it was supposed to be. No more sin, no more death, no more corruption. And people are going to live knowing who they are in God and living rightly between themselves and God and themselves and their neighbors and themselves in the world. As Jesus comes on the scene, as his popularity ramps up, as he's not just teaching amazing things, but he's doing amazing things, the religious leaders of the day are starting to have <clears throat> doubts because he's doing and saying things that very clearly um, intonate that he's claiming to be divine. He doesn't claim to be just a prophet. He's claiming to be something more than a prophet, greater than anyone who's come before him. And in a Jewish worldview, that's blasphemy because there's only one God. And so 
at this point in the story, the religious authorities have really ramped up their persecution of Jesus. And we're in the final stages of Jesus' ministry where he's turning his face towards Jerusalem and he's about to move towards the cross. So this is kind of a high tension point in the story. And Jesus and the disciples have been in this pressure cooker of tension of who is this Jesus? Where is he going? Is he really a blasphemer? And they go up on this mountain to, to pray, to get away, to strengthen themselves. And then you have this unfold. So what do you notice? What sticks out to you from the text? And I don't have my glasses, and I'm blind in one eye. So you're going to have to do more than just like, you're going to have to like either yell at me from this side of the room or be like, oh, like, let's, like trying to land a plane. A- anything that sticks out to you. You don't have to have some great insight. You might just say, oh, I just noticed this, or what's going on there. Okay, Dana. Yeah, good. A few things there. So Dana's making this comment about how, how do Peter and James and John not know who Jesus is at this point? And yet when Elijah and Moses show up, it, it, Peter's kind of like, oh, this is great that you're all here. We should have kind of like a place for all of you to stay. This is really neat. But it's kind of making Jesus on the same level of Moses and Elijah, right? It's a really interesting observation. One of the things, I'm going to touch on the first thing you said, Dana. It's amazing that spending so much time with Jesus you would still be dull to who he is. Notice at the end of the story where they're coming down after all of this and Jesus says, we got to keep a lid on this until I rise from the dead. And then, um, so in verse 10, it says, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And I think this is, this is a pretty important insight for all of us. You can, be, you can be following Jesus for a long time. You can be sincere in your followership of Jesus. But this is why it's so important for us to stay humble. Because you can have these amazing experiences of Jesus. And you can be exposed to incredible things. And as this story teaches, and probably your own story if you're honest with yourself, you can still be pretty dull to God's purposes. You can still be like, yeah, I kind of, I saw this and rising from the dead, I don't know what's going on. And yet they're so close to Jesus. So I think it's a good little devotional reflection there to say, stay, stay humble. Now Dana also picked up on the fact that in verse 5, Peter says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let, let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This is great. This is like the all-star team of, um, of, of the Jewish people. But actually, this is... I think Mark wants to read us to read this as a, um, a lowering of Jesus. Peter's like, notice that Peter calls Jesus rabbi here. Rabbi, you're, you're like with all these other great prophets. Moses and Elijah are here. This would be great. It's good for us to be here. Let's, I want to keep you at this level. There's an interesting thing that happens directly after this where God rebukes Peter for that attitude. Notice what, the, notice what the voice from heaven, we encountered this voice from heaven early on in Mark's gospel. It's the voice of God the Father. But notice in verse 7, 
that the voice says right after Peter's made this suggestion. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. The voice isn't for Jesus. The voice was for Peter and James and John. Wow, Jesus is here. And we've got a, um, we're part of this huge tradition, Moses and the law and Elijah with the prophets. And now we have Jesus. That's awesome. And God the Father kind of interrupts that thought pattern and says, Moses, I used Moses. He's part of my plan. I used Elijah. But this is my son. So you listen to him. You don't put him on the same level as other heroes of the faith. He's to be elevated. He's in a class all by himself. You listen to him. What else do you notice in the text or things that you might have a question about? Stacy? Yeah, great reflection. So Stacy just shared that sometimes you can see something, you can have this idea in your head like Peter did, and you're like, oh, this is awesome, and here's the plan. Here's what we need to do right now. And this voice, again, interrupts that thought process, not just to say, um, don't do something, but to to listen to Jesus first. Let your action not be, don't let your Christian life be simply a reaction to, you read something, you see something, and then you just kind of do what seems right in your own eyes, but you're making sure you're intentionally slowing down and listening to Jesus. Yes, yeah, super important. That's a great reflection. There's a little bit of Peter in all of us. We tend to be, especially in Western culture, we tend to be doers and uh, trying to create solutions before we maybe even uh, understand what the problem is. Paul? Oh, how would you know? That is a great question. So Paul says, Moses and Elijah appeared before them. How would Peter, James, and John know who they were? Because it's not like they had Wikipedia and they could just do a quick search on their cell phone and be like, oh, that's what Moses looks like. I did, I remember, I, good thing I just watched uh, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. Now I can identify. <laughs> right, how come they're not like, oh, these are two apparitions. You know, these are two angels? Or how do they know it's... Um, Moses and Elijah. Verse 4. And there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, who were talking with Jesus. So this isn't just a vision where there's Jesus and like, oh, Moses and Elijah, and they're just kind of standing there, not doing anything, and they have to identify Moses and Elijah are actually talking with Jesus. They're not talking to Peter, James, and John. They're talking with Jesus. And the phrase in Greek, talking with Jesus, is something called a periphrastic imperfect tense, which means it refers to an ongoing longer conversation. So it wasn't like Jesus is transfigured in in this glorious radiance, and Moses and Elijah show up, and they're like, hey, Jesus, 
hate, hate, hate. They enter into a long conversation. In Luke 9.31, in Luke's account of the transfiguration, you find out what the conversation is about. Luke 9.31 says they were discussing Jesus' departure from Jerusalem. That might not seem significant because that's an understandable but not as helpful translation of the word departure because the Greek word for departure is the Hebrew word exodus. So they are discussing Jesus' exodus, his upcoming exodus, which he's going to establish in Jerusalem. What's the exodus? Exodus in the Old Testament. God rescues a people, brings them up, saves them up and out of Egypt and exits them out of Egypt, out of slavery, into a new identity as the people of God, saves them, gives them his law, brings them into the promised land. Moses and Elijah are now discussing with Jesus a new exodus, a more important exodus, a capital E exodus that that lowercase e exodus is pointing to. This Jesus, this new Moses, this new prophet, is more than a prophet. He's a prophet, priest, and a king. He's God come in human form to rescue us up and out of slavery to sin, to the power and penalty of sin, and Jesus is going to lead us through the cross, through the resurrection, into a new kind of identity, a new kind of life, and a new promised land. So I think what happens is, in the course of this discussion, Peter, James, and John realize, oh, these are two major figureheads in the Old Testament. Moses representing the law, God's instruction to his people. Elijah representing the prophetic voice and being a figurehead for the prophets. Both of whom are ultimately trying to point to Jesus to say, everything that we're about is going to be fulfilled in this person. All these stories, things like this exodus or rescuing from the flood, this is going to all find its ultimate definition in and through Jesus. So he's the one you have to look to. Anything else that you notice from the text? Deborah. Absolutely. Very clear. Jesus is rooting his story. He's not just, I'm just here, and uh, you can kind of decide who I am. He's like, I'm coming out of a larger story, which has prophecies, which has promises connected to them, and what I'm doing is a fulfillment of a long history. So to fully understand me, you've got to kind of go back and become conversant with a little bit of the Old Testament, um, the more the better, so that who Jesus is and what his mission is and its relevance to you becomes clear. You could pick up a New Testament that just the, you could pick up the Gospel of Mark and just read it knowing nothing else. You'll get something out of it. But the more your understanding and depth of the broader biblical story grows, the more glorious Jesus will be to you. There'll just be these cracks that are filled in. There'll be, there'll be dimensionalities that you didn't even know to overturn to look for, and you're like, oh, wow, that's really amazing. Other things that you see in the text. Just rephrase the question in a different way, Dylan. You're asking... Um, like, uh, with him, with him being, being here, how 
okay, so the connection between verse 12 and Jesus' statement that he is going to rise again, kind of keep a lid on this until that happens. Uh, yes, Jesus has now uh, starting to introduce this theme that I'm going to the cross to die, but that's not going to be the end of the story. I'm going to be resurrected. That's going to open up a whole, it's going to be an event horizon that opens up a whole new way of understanding my mission, understanding your role in the world. In verse 12, when Jesus is saying, to be sure, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Again, this is where, um, if we know a little bit more from the different gospels, we can piece some of this together. Because there was a person who shows up on the scene who, in a different part of the gospel, Jesus says, this is the Elijah who was to come. Does anyone remember who that person was? John the Baptist. So when John the Baptist comes um, as a precursor to Jesus, Jesus points to John and says, um, the Old Testament says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, when God comes to intervene and bring uh, judgment, and, uh, but through judgment, restoration to the world, Elijah is going to come. And Jewish figures, Jewish uh, teachers didn't know if that meant like, a re- like Elijah is going to come again. Like, does that mean reincarnation? Or is he going to drop down out of heaven? Or will it be an Elijah-type figure? And Jesus says it's an Elijah-type figure. And that figure is John the Baptist. And that means if John the Baptist is that Elijah figure, then everything that's said about Jesus and about what happens after this Elijah figure, that God is coming, informs how we understand Jesus. So therefore, Jesus isn't just another prophet in a long line of prophets. If Elijah comes before this Jesus, that means Jesus is Yahweh coming in human form to do for his people what he couldn't do for himself. Anything else that you see there or notice or have a question about? I want to show you a, <clears throat> a short little video in a moment. Uh, let me set it up for you. One of the interesting things that, again, you, you're likely going to miss, um, not because uh, I missed it, and it wasn't until you start working with the Greek and the Hebrew that uh, it sticks out to you, is in verse 7, something pretty significant happens. A cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. Okay, we talked about some of those dimensions, God the Father singling out Jesus as unique and important. But the word listen there is very significant. In some translations, your Bible won't say listen, it'll say hear. And that's because the Greek word that's being used here is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Shema, which is a very generic word on one level in Hebrew, which basically just means listen or hear. But if we do a bit of a word study on what Shema means, reading that back through this declaration from God the Father might open up some of the significance of this text to us. So watch this little video.
So again, just a helpful little word study to make sure that we're not reading listen as just kind of like, hear it and kind of mull it around and see what you think about it. But it's actually a command from God the Father saying, this is my son, listen and obey, respond, build your life around this Jesus. Let me move through my six applications and insights from the text. I'm going to do it quickly. Number one, Jesus tends to reveal himself within the context of close friendship. Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And I love this story because it reminds me that we all need an inner circle of close friends. Notice Jesus himself doesn't take all of his disciples up on the mountain. He just takes Peter, James, and John. And that, that triplicate repeats a few times in, in the Gospels where Jesus shares a particular experience just with them. Jesus, in his full humanity, needed friends, but he also needed an inner circle of really close friends. And if you have those in your life, treasure them, thank God for them, encourage them, because we all need them. Jesus needed them, we need them. If you don't have that inner circle of close friends, pray that God would bring them into your life. Not just acquaintances. Acquaintances are good. There's kind of different levels of friendship. But I mean like a real inner circle who you could say, I need prayer. Will you come away with me and just pray for a while because I'm really burdened? That's really important. And my experience has has been that Jesus tends to reveal himself uniquely in that context. God does does big things in big groups. And God has touched my life when I've just prayed privately to him. But there has been times of particular sweetness where I've been gathered with two or three Christians praying through an issue. Number two, times of retreat focused on prayer with friends can be revelatory. We, we do need times where we get away, where we get out of normal life and we retreat in order to cultivate a closeness to Jesus. Spiritual retreats, things like camps, have always been part of the Christian tradition where people have said, of course, God is active and involved in all the dimensionality of our life. It's not that we go to retreat to find God. We go to retreat to put ourselves in a place of voluntary understimulation so that it's a little bit easier for us to be aware of God's presence and we remove as many distractions as we can. We kind of clear the mental deck so that there's just less hurdles for God to overcome in trying to speak to us. So if God wants to whisper something to us, he, we're actually quiet enough to hear. So again, let that be an encouragement to you. I know there's a youth spiritual formation retreat coming up next month and a men's retreat and a women's retreat. Those are important to take advantage of. Number three, mountaintops are a means. They're not an end. Look at Peter's reaction. Jesus has just told him he's going to go and die. He leads him up into a mountain. He's transformed. And kind of the veil of Jesus' full divinity is removed and they see Jesus in all of his divine glory. And Peter's reaction is, this is amazing. Let's stay here forever. This is an awesome moment. Let's set up tents. The word that Peter uses there is skinas, which is from the Hebrew shekinah, glory. Let's set up these tents so that this glory can stay here forever. I want to hold on to this moment forever. This compulsion, this need that we have to take these beautiful God these moments where God's presence and power seems so concentrated and to hold on to them forever, this text shows us it's always been there. But the mountaintop is never something that we're supposed to hold on to. And it's not something that we're supposed to chase. 
be very wary of any Christian tradition, any Christian train of thought that holds out chasing mountaintop experiences. That is a very destructive and ultimately, actually, self-centered cycle. Because the mountaintops are there to strengthen you, to give you a vision of Jesus so that you can go back into your everyday life, the valley, with his love and grace. You show, you show up next week. Find out what happens next when they come down the mountain. It's not glorious. Spoiler alert. It's not glorious. The mountaintop is a means through which God strengthens us. We all want to live on mountaintops, but God's saying no. We take the blessing of the mountaintop and bring it back down into the valley. Number four, Jesus' glory is going to be ours later. If you are in Christ, again, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's kind of like a trailer for a larger, coming, uh, larger movie that's coming down the pipe. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. What we're seeing in Jesus is a preview of what the kind of body we're going to have when he returns and uh, gives us resurrected bodies. Fully real, substantial bodies, not ephemeral spirits, but glorious bodies, freed from the corruption of sin and death. Number five, in some ways, though, Jesus' glory can be ours now. It's a really interesting word that is used for transfigured or transfiguration, from which this text gets its, uh, its title. It's actually the same word in Greek that can be translated transformed. So transformed and transfigured, you could go either way with this. The Greek word transformed only shows up two other times in the New Testament. First is Romans 12.2. You probably know this one. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we open up God's word, as we let it seek in, uh, seep in, we become transformed. We, in some ways, God begins this work of glorifying us, of bringing out the radiance of who Christ is through us. But a really interesting one is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, and all of us, all of us Christians who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, as we reflect on and stare at and contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed. We're being transfigured into his image with ever-increasing glory. It's not happening right away little bit by bit, but it's happening as we reflect and contemplate the Lord's glory. It's a really good question for your small group, so you can do it with uh, maybe a mentor in your life. One of the questions on your thing is, what are practical ways we can contemplate the Lord's glory? What does that look like? That'd be really, really important to unpack as a group or with, again, a group of uh, two or three. And lastly, number six, revelation demands a response. If you if Jesus is who he reveals himself to be, our response can't be, that's kind of neat. Remember Peter's response. Oh, like you're like one of the great prophets. And he gets, he gets rebuked. He gets called out on that by God the Father. No, this is my son. We're dealing with a different level of authority. You need to listen. You need to shema him. Listen and obey him. One writer said this, the natural instinct when we see the glory of who Jesus is is fear and then worship. We fall on our faces, but there's also a practical continuation of our response. 
that comes at the divine instruction to obey Jesus. If Jesus truly is the Lord of glory and not just a prophet from Galilee, then we must worship and obey him. When Jesus reveals himself to you, you've got to respond accordingly. Here's the gospel close. Here's, in case it's not obvious, this text is an amazing window into the gospel, into the central good news of Christianity. A lot of this text is built on an allusion to something that happens in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, 33, 34, Moses goes up into a mountain. On that mountaintop, the glory of God descends in a cloud. God is in the cloud, and he interacts with Moses face to face. And when Moses comes down the mountain, his face is radiant, so they have to put a veil on him because he's been in God's presence, and the glory of God kind of rubs off on Moses, and his face is kind of glowing. It eventually fades, but he, um, he kind of catches the glory or reflects it like a mirror. And that story is kind of mirrored here in Jesus, but it's kind of turned up in terms of the volume. Because Moses, when he had this revelation from God, reflects the glory of God. But in this passage, Jesus produces the glory. He is the glory of God. Jesus isn't glowing because, like Moses, he's simply a human who is in the presence of God, and then it kind of he glows and then it kind of fades away. This is who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't point to the glory of God like Moses did. He doesn't point to God's glory like Elijah did. He actually is the glory of God come in human form. The author of the book of Hebrews says it like this, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And if that's true, that means when you look at Jesus... When you study his life, you're seeing what most people, when they think of the word God, you're seeing what God looks like. Jesus is the perfect revelation of who God the Father is. And that's significant in the context of the story. Because what you see is the huge difference between this glorious God-man Jesus and all the other gods that different people and cultures have tried to create. See, unlike the gods of the ancient world, whose shrines were built on the mountains, they were built in the high places. So the culture said, oh, that God is powerful. That God is mighty. And in order for us to connect to that God, we have to go up the mountain. Because the gods make their dwelling in the high places, in the mountaintops. Unlike those gods, Jesus doesn't come and live on the mountaintop. And even when he ascends to the mountaintop, he never stays there. He never stays there. He descends into the valley. And he doesn't just descend into any valley. He descends into the valley of the shadow of death. Capital D. Even death on a cross. That's how different this God is. He doesn't leverage his glory for his own acclaim. He leverages it for people who are stuck in the valley. See, that's the gospel. Jesus is glorious. He could have stayed on the mountaintop, but he came down. And he emptied himself. He, he emptied himself. He didn't hold on to his status. He leveraged it instead. He went down 
to find you, to rescue you, to bring you up out of the valley. So in a sense, we could experience the mountaintop forever. He went down so we could come up. That's the gospel in a nutshell. He became nothing. He was poured out to death. Philippians 2 speaks to that. He he made himself poor that we might become rich, receiving eternal life now and a future resurrection and inheritance that we don't even deserve. So my prayer for this morning as we leave this place is would the glory of this Jesus settle in a new way in our heart? May we see who he is and what he's done for us. And may our response be to Shema him. Let's pray. This is a rich text. God, we thank you for it. I pray that it would, it would just rumble around in our head and hearts even this week, God, in new ways as we maybe go back to it. Your glory is on display here, God, but also your full humanity is on display here. And they both have tremendous things to teach us, but we want to be a people who shema you, who listen in order to obey and to conform our lives around you. We acknowledge you as our king. We acknowledge you as our Lord. We acknowledge you as our God. Help us, God, to see your glory and, trans- and to live transformed lives in response to it. In your mighty name, amen.